Today's guest on Borrowed Wisdom is actor-director Anthony Edwards, most widely known for his role as Dr. Mark Green on ER, for which he received a Golden Globe Award, six Screen Actors Guild Awards, and four consecutive Primetime Emmy Award nominations. He's also appeared in various movies and television shows, including Top Gun, Zodiac, Miracle Mile. Today, he joined us as chairman of the board of directors of One in Six, a leading national organization dedicated to helping men who have had unwanted or abusive sexual experiences live healthier, happier lives. Hey, everybody. Robert Barry Fleming here, and I've got a very special guest, Anthony Edwards, who's joined us to talk about a great organization called One in Six. I had the pleasure of being introduced to it online through Anthony. So, Tony, welcome, and thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure, Robert. I'm just going to give a little brief. One in six is basically a statistic, as I understand. At least one in six men have been sexually abused or assaulted. Researchers have found that at least one in six men have experienced sexual abuse or assault, whether in childhood or as adults. And this is probably a low estimate since it doesn't include non-contact experiences, which can also have lasting negative effects. And this is something that uh, obviously got my attention um, as someone who's a survivor of childhood sexual abuse and had been for many years looking for pathways to get to a healthier and happier life from that experience, knowing that it impacted me in such a way. Can you talk to us a little bit about how you were introduced to One in Six and uh, your experience with, with the organization? Well, I guess it would be go into that expression of the fact is that when in dealing with disease or dealing with, with, with issues like this, a classic situation is someone feels terminally unique. And I have, I think I felt terminally unique, which is really similar. And that really reflects more about isolation than the fact is um, I did the classic thing, which is it's, it's, it's the average time between for a man to reveal that he had been abused, uh, had a sexual abuse issue uh, experience in childhood is between 20 and 40 to 50 years. Men classically don't speak about this. I happened to me when I was 13, 14. I didn't speak about this openly or look at it until I was 52 years old. Um, and for me, I came to it out of anger, out of um, uh, out of rage, because the person who had abused me had promised me 20 years earlier that they had gotten help. When I had confronted that person, because in, in the world of it, it coincided with the birth of my first child. And there's something empowering about becoming a father in which you really see what unconditional love is and the world becomes crystal clear because you need to. You need to survive. And that, that coincided with me actually running into, on an airplane, this man. And this man, I confronted and told him how wrong it was, what had happened, the damage he uh, inflicted on myself and many of my friends. And he said absolutely had gotten help, that he had no longer was, uh, it was a dark part of his life and gave me a full, which I, in my heart, wanted to believe. And then cut to, uh, I'm 52 years old, and he appears on the news because he's part of a, 
a, a group of uh, pedophiles who'd been accused and were ended up in the news. And his name came up, and I realized that it had all been a continuation of the lie, a continuation of the betrayal. But the rage was so present and so there, I also realized that I had to do something. I had to look at something here that I wasn't looking at. And my good friend, Mariska Hargitay, who runs the Joyful Heart Foundation in New York, I called her up and I said, Mariska, I want to take out an ad in the Hollywood Reporter and Variety, and I want to say Goose and Dr. Green was molested by this man. And, you know, I just wanted fireworks and explode and death and destruction, all of it. And she said, <laughs> well, I understand that, but let's first take care of you. And that's when I realized, and then I did. I, she helped me, and I found a, a, a therapist who specialized in sexual abuse recovery, and I started a journey there that uh, I am just so grateful for. And, and that's really, I say this bit of a long story, but that's really why I ended up and why I'm committed now to One in Six, because One in Six as an organization is really about putting the primary focus on recovery, on healing first, on the adage, take the splinter out of our eye so that we can see clearly and then do whatever action we need. But we need to remove, we need to deal with the, the effects of this abuse. And it manifests in all of us in so many different ways. Classically, men will turn to alcohol, drugs, power, control, obsessive behavior of one form or another to medicate. It's very similar to the reaction that addiction and alcoholism has. And uh, for me, it was overachieving in a way. <laughs> I mean, I was like, you know, the obsessive quality of acting, that all of it, we can get into that later. But anyway, the recovery was what the primary thing was first. And that's what I've realized too. That, I mean, there's a lot of things happening now with Boy Scouts and lawsuits and men. And I understand it, that you just want to get back and you want to, you want to right the wrong and you want justice. The really the most important thing to first is to heal, to find recovery. And that is what we do at One in Six, is we provide opportunities, information, and ways for men to find their own beginning of a journey way out. Because everybody is going to do it differently. But there are some big stuff that we can help with and get them going. Because, as we say, you're just one conversation away. Because every man remembers the first time they disclosed, or the first time they had someone that they loved or cared enough that they could be that honest. And, and that's the beginning of healing. What you described, and there are so many things, thank you so much, Tony, for, for that. You know, we're in a moment where we're looking at everything from the Me Too movement, Dr. Larry Nasser's sexual abuse scandal through the USA Gymnastics and Michigan State kind of situation, Dr. Robert E. Anderson at the University of Michigan, who sexually assaulted several athletes in his time there and continued to serve for 24 additional years, the Catholic Archdiocese of Boston sex abuse scandal, the Penn State abuse scandal with Jerry Sandusky, and even very recently recognizing that the officer, Brett Hankison, who was involved in the Breonna Taylor killing, seemed to also have allegations of sexual assault. And so you're kind of putting together these interesting connections around assault, control, the need to medicate, 
certainly a part of my narrative that the alcohol piece as a way to try to navigate this traumatic piece, it being an integral part of it. There's so much that seems to be so prevalent in our society, in our systems, and the fact that many people just have to wonder why do adults fail to protect children from sexual abuse that we all kind of imagine that we would want to intercede if something like that and imagine we would if something like that came to our attention. And many children, they say, think they know that somebody else knows and often they're right. But there seem to be a number of reasons why adults seem to fall short. And some of the descriptions on the one in six website run from overwhelming feelings, stereotypes, the cost of speaking up versus the cost of silence, self-doubt, and misunderstandings about how children respond. Do you have a sense from your own story how it was that you were in harm's way as a 13 to 14 year old and how that occurred and, and how you've processed that as an adult, as well as thinking about your own children's safety in the world. Yes, because my uh, uh, my experience was that I, um, this was, we talk about the physical harm of this, but the emotional betrayal of having someone you love and other people love betray that trust by abusing and creating a conditional relationship in which if you don't play by these rules, this relationship is broken, is far more powerful than the kind of safety line of, a, of an adult many times. And I literally had my mother say to me when I was 14, we hear that Gary is inappropriate and is doing things. Is that possible? Is that true? Have you had any experience? And through a tremendous amount of tears, I said, absolutely not. He is trustworthy and loving and only has our best interests for, because when it comes to that, I would, you will lose everything if you speak the truth. And that commitment to a conditional love and conditional conditionality in all relationships is what ultimately creates this long term of denial and hiding because not only are you afraid that that'll happen, the fact is it's true. I would, I would lose that relationship. I would lose those friends. I would lose that. It would have been the best thing for me because it was an unhealthy thing, but that's not how our heart works because that's the forgiveness we have to give is that that young person only wants love. That's all we want. And to manipulate that and control that is the most abusive part of this, that betrayal. That's why, you know, Patrick Carnes writes it so powerfully in his book, The Betrayal Bond, what that betrayal bond is and how powerful it is. And, you know, that's why, because I hear it all the time of parents saying, what can I do to protect? Well, the only thing that any of us can do is provide a safe place for everyone to be able to speak their truth. And it might not be with me. That's why we, when we talk about this village, so many people couldn't face disclosing to their parents because 
that would in effect mean I'm saying to you, mom and dad, you didn't protect me. You're not protecting me. You're failing as a parent. And we can't take that on. So that's where the silence just becomes so powerful. But there are friends, their aunts, their uncles, their other people. There's you and I having this conversation so we can say, it's okay. It's okay to talk about. You have done nothing wrong. As the chairman and a national spokesperson for one in six, what do you see your role in helping uh, men navigate their guilt, their shame, and the very natural response of rage to a violation of one's body in that manner or uh, one's person in that kind of coercive situation with that kind of casual violence? Well, I, I feel like um, because I, I feel that my experience in the statistics show in the Me Too movement, you have a tr this wonderful thing happening of women getting really angry and articulating the anger and rage that they have because they've never been able to. The fact is, in a general sense, men have the opposite problem. There's no lack of rage. <laughs> There's no lack of anger. There's no lack of that. What we need, though, in moving forward is more likely to soften, to soften and allow the subtleties of these feelings to be able to be trust and reestablish. So that's why a lot of men stay silent because they're like, well, if I have to face this, does that mean I have to get up and scream and yell about my purpose? Well, no, but women have needed that experience because they've been so disempowered for so long as women generally. Men have been so overly empowered <laughs> and overly indulged that, um, we actually need the opposite. So back to your question, which is, that's why I think the beauty of one in six is not to separate us from other female experience of sexual abuse or that, but in the world of, of men, it's a little bit different. It's a lot different. And and so our, our, our requirements, we need more focus and association with the fact that men process differently. Men have been programmed differently big thing, which is like, yes, it's wonderful to hear that Joe Biden's thing from his dad was pick it up and suck it up and move on. Not suck it up necessarily, but this idea of working, like just get up and go again is sometimes not okay. We need to not get up and go again. We need to stop and we need to look at this and at this, at this softness. And, you know, this be a man, don't cry, don't show feelings. These kind of general stereotypical things that we think we understand, we actually don't. And we actually do need to make a concerted effort. And that's where I find with men, it's wonderful is that anytime I'm with a group of men, especially male survivors, you think women get chatty. Once men start <laughs> talking, it's like... It, do not want to stop. I mean, it's this incredible experience to be. And as a result, you realize the power of, 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 of not being terminally unique. That we share so much. We have, you know, it's, it's, uh, we may have different experiences. I mean, we may have different, um, you know, details, but our experience is all the same. You know, the experiences having been betrayed uh, and having that trust betrayed because the truth is, uh, most of the physical issues are, you know, our bodies take care of that. They deal with damage. They deal with that. But the emotional trauma, 
of that betrayal is what leads to, which is amazing when you think of this work, we're talking over 20 million American men who aren't talking. And if they start healing, what will that mean socially to how we actually, and you and I, we don't even have to go, we could do an all other three hours on the fact of like, oh, right, that's why we need theater. That's why we need people in a room together, experiencing truths, honesties, laughs, all of that. We have to have it. We always have, you know. They talk about this, you know, predates Greece. And now we're learning, of course, that in, you know, African cultures, that storytelling <laughs> was absolutely as fundamental as, you know, the all development of man. So it's just an example that that I think for the importance is really and, and a sign to look for is isolation. When you feel a friend isolate or you know a man's isolating or they're doing that thing of like, don't worry, I can get through this alone and I'll do this. It's generally a, a, a trigger assigned to me that someone's not dealing with something because we can't do this alone. We cannot. Absolutely. Yeah. So, Tony, so how does one stay in, stay in the recovery focus while you're navigating really difficult subjective things that make you maybe want to pull into all the things that are different about you that make you unique, as opposed to the things that really we can all kind of come together on and keep working to try to help each other heal? Well, I think you're hitting on something really important, basically, which is, I just think socially we have this thing that's taught to us that like, okay, you have a problem, fix it and move on. These aren't problems that are just going to be fixed and moved on. And the process of recovery is really something as, as daunting as it may seem. It's not daunting, but this is kind of our life's work. Like we really are going to be working on this all the time because we're talking about spending, having spent the majority of our life functioning out of a conditional version of relationships. And that's with ourselves too, of expecting certain things from ourselves, all that conditional stuff and punishment involved if you don't succeed. So it puts this pressure on, oh, geez, if I don't get over my whatever, I've failed. Well, we're actually not looking to get over anything. We're actually not looking to put, yes, Perpetrators should be separated from children. All of that stuff needs to happen. But for our journey, we need to just develop new techniques of processing. And if we allow ourselves to process emotionally, we will give ourselves the opportunity to just keep continuing. So in fact, the, the journey, the joy of this has been realizing, oh, no, this is going to be a good addition to my life. This is not something I'm going to do separately and then start life and get back to work. I will actually be able to incorporate this work. It's going to enhance my life. And that's where the real commonality is. I use, there was a wonderful, I worked with a theater in Santa Barbara called Access Theater. And Access Theater was very successful in, in really being one of the groundbreaking companies that worked with disabled artists and different abilities. And, and um, uh, Neil Marcus, who's a playwright and poet who lives in San Francisco, is a wonderful man. You probably know Neil. And Neil, we, I did a documentary on Neil. And what he's talked about in his play and what he talked about is that his play was called Storm Reading. And here's a man with full physical uh, dis uh, disability, looked like cerebral palsy, 
very difficult for him to speak everything. But what he equated in there is that we're all born disabled. <laughs> when we pass, we, we need help, we're disabled then. And many times we're disabled in between. And so the fact is that storm, that place of dysfunction, of disability, of needing other people to survive is really where we relate. And this illusion that you're on your own and you make it on your own and all that is actually much more of a myth. And we have to learn to embrace those that, the I mean, there's important times to stand up and be strong and be an individual and voice your opinion. But the foundation has to be one of understanding and appreciating the storms within all of us. And the storms are made up of experience. They're made up of generational things. My father did absolutely the best he could, but he was a, you know, post-traumatic World War II survivor of, of horrific violence as a young 19-year-old in World War II. That's the best he could do as a dad. He didn't have the tools, the opportunity to look at PTSD. They won the war. He was a hero. I mean, you talk about Arthur Miller. I mean, we're like right in it, you know? And, and so that forgiveness of having a storm, of having these experiences with ourselves is a really beginning part. I mean, just to jump right into survival techniques, my experience of going for a weekend of recovery with 40 men from all over the country and spending three days with survivors and wonderful therapists experiencing was transformative for me because we don't have that experience naturally. You don't find like a group of men like going, hey, you want to come over and let's talk about what happened when we were kids. Right. But when we, once we, like I say, once we do open that door, there's such a tremendous relief toward the shoulders and the weight. Imagine the weight that you carried. We don't have to imagine. You know the weight that you carried because the biggest tragedy, one of the big tragedies is that the survivors think it's their fault. It's because it doesn't compute that someone you love would hurt you. That doesn't make sense in the psyche. And that's where, you know, that's one of the first first steps of this is is taking the shame away how do men who have had that experience later in life with a sexual assault where it was not a childhood experience find space i know in 2016 one in six began to also include and offer that service and space for men who also might have had a different experience or at least that's their recollection of it and the way that they come into the recovery space how how does one who comes into this much later navigate the space? Is it any different? No, because abuse is abuse is abuse, and uh, and trauma is trauma. And you know, it's like when we were doing the TV series ER, and I was working with all these emergency room doctors and you know, wonderful nurses and everything. And the one thing you realize is that what's interesting about the location of that is everybody who comes to an emergency room, it's an emergency. We may go, oh, you only have a splinter or you have a heart attack. It is an emergency for them. And that's the same thing here. We don't judge to the level, but we do as individuals. Part of my silence was the fact of like, oh, well, what happened to me wasn't as bad as what happened to someone else. My best friend. He got it worse. So 
I was lucky because it wasn't as bad as me. You know, we categorize. It is. It's just like, no, wrong is wrong. It's never going to be right. And us trying to make it fit in is only us trying to do the work of the abuser, which is to justify that they had to do it. To this day, the man who abused me believes that he is the most loving person of young people there is. He believes that what he did, he did out of love. Well, <laughs> what am I going to do? Argue that? <laughs> like you don't win arguments without only to go to the recovery part as an adult if an adult is abused or assaulted in any way you know the the tools are the same which is to disassociate to to, to learn a way to to separate from making it your fault your responsibility and start the healing by play, calling it what it is you know we don't gain anything by minimizing and in fact we give power to abuse you offered uh, the reality of having to navigate shame in so many ways. One of the questions on the website is about, as a male survivor, will I become abusive? And what if I already have? Because we know this kind of abuse impacts people very differently. We know that there seems to be a pattern of if there is abuse and you do find people moving into predatory spaces and uh, enacting that, that's one of the ways that sometimes it impacts someone who's had an abuse. There's um, absolutely no scientific, no research that indicates that because you're abused, you will abuse. There's absolutely none. Quite the opposite. Because, and when you look at the numbers, you think, well, how could you have these huge numbers? Well, the fact is, when it comes to, especially in child abuse situations, when you're dealing with pedophiles, one pedophile will probably abuse two to 300 victims. Mm -hmm. Those two to 300 victims aren't going on and abusing. Our numbers would be, <laughs> that's, that's not what is happening here. What's happening, you know, so uh, it's, it, there is myth to that. It's also, yeah, part of what keeps people silent. How would a father, here's a man in the heterosexual community. Here I am as a straight man. Would I tell my wife that? Well, that might, she might think I could be a threat. Oh, like somehow I would, in my dark area, want to act out. There's no evidence to that effect. And uh, in fact, it's quite the opposite because what happens is, People who are abused don't abuse others. They just abuse themselves. And that's because when you have that stuff that's unprocessed, you end up, and that may indicate like, oh my God, this person seems out of control. Well, they are out of control because they're abusing themselves. And as you said, and we, we find all these different experiences, alcohol, drugs, sex, control, uh, you know, rage, all of these things. Yeah, it, and it's this interesting conflation that that one may become that which was done to them and that some people who have had a, abusive experiences actually abuse people does not mean causation, that that is a, a relationship. Thanks for like clarifying. Yeah, no, it's, and those things of breaking that stigma is, is really important because they are, all these things are things of to like, oh, yeah, we should stay quiet. Yes, yes. You know, as an actor and a storyteller and someone who's worked in the field of entertainment to such an expert and renowned kind of space as you have, 
What is it like for you in terms of your ability to be able to share your own story, your own experiences, knowing that you've also had a very unique position and experience as a human being because of the unique dynamic Americans have with celebrity and what a meaning they assign to that? Yeah, I think more than anything is that I I, I feel like I, I have the advantage of when I go to a room or I go to speak, people already have some kind of image of me and they have it mm-hmm. through, depends where you are. <laughs> some things are as a Navy fighter pilot or mm-hmm. an ER doctor who, you know, had a, but they, they, there is already. And from that, I don't have to, I can already, I can jump to the, to the, to, to what we're talking about because I don't have to say who I am or what I'm doing this for a lot of people. And some people, um, there is a thing of, uh, but, you know, there, in relation to celebrity, it's really important because I don't know if you ever read Richard Schickel's book. It's called Intimate Strangers. Yes. You have read it. So, I mean, that to me was so informative because the fact is celebrity is something that's created. It was created to sell movies. It's it in the 1700s when you were a Parisian opera star. Your personal life wasn't hounded or looked at or exploited. You were just known because you were an opera star. And that's what you did, just like the bigger of the... But the, the, the weight that we put onto it to make it an elitist thing that can never be achieved is what's also taken, and rightfully so, a lot of the weight from it. The fact is, there's resentment to celebrity. So you can't, because I'm famous, you should listen to me. All it can do is hopefully create a, a world in which you can then be genuine and honest, which is why the one in six stuff is really important and fun for me to do. But, you know, once again, me going out and saying you have to vote for Joe Biden because I'm a famous person and you need to do that. Like most people rightfully are like, well, F you, you know, because I'm celebrity representing something that we're never going to have ultimately is why you can't name a famous person basically who gets super famous that doesn't get built up and then just pulled down again because we want to tear that down because it doesn't feel right because it isn't right there's nothing natural about it it's a man-made manifested thing and yet the the work that you do and the way that you've participated in stories that are an integral part of kind of our cultural purview and the way that we understand the world i know i mean i was a big fan of er you know, as an actor, just because of the mastery of like the form and the great acting and all of those things. Uh, But also those stories were so, they opened up worlds for, for so many of us who don't understand those worlds. And, and there was something about that language, all of that technical language that was made so human. And I think uh, what you'll, I think what you'll appreciate, Robert, is something that, that um, John Wells said to me one time privately, uh, which is, I think, something really important, directly related to what we're talking about, is the power of ER wasn't that it came out and told, it said, like, this is what, um, you know, we need to support black doctors in this. He knew enough and understands enough that the fact that we would have Asian, black, all different races together working in an environment without pointing it out was more important because once you start preaching or telling, you know, and you know it as a theater, like once you get a play where it's like, I have an agenda, so I've written a play, 
you're like, we can't do this play because audiences don't want to be told what to do and what to think. And, and that's the, that's the world that is, that gets mixed up because people come to me very often and go, well, because you're survivor, then you're going to want to tell this movie about survivors. And it's like, not necessarily like we got to do the theater part well first before we start mm-hmm. thinking we're doing a message because Tennessee Williams and Eugene O'Neill and all our wonderful playwrights didn't write plays because they were out to change the world. They wrote an expression of the truth and the experience they had. And then we could see the world changing. And that's really important and, and not very American. American is like, that's it. You know, and and that's the truth, because ER once when it tried to that's why people were drawn to it, because it just felt real and they wanted to be around it. And then they had their own imagination as to what the characters and the soap opera part of it all. But man, when you start, you know, doing the like, this is what you have to do. (laughs) Right, right. I do as an audience, so. The, and thanks for mentioning Marishka and um, the work that she's done on SVU. Very similar, the kind of door that's open for people to be able to begin to wrap their minds around this kind of sexual trauma being something that is something people can talk about. We have a unique situation in Kentucky that the incidences of child abuse are the highest of any of the states in Kentucky. And second is Indiana. So the Kentuckiana region has some real challenge in relationship to that. And this culture of, I don't know if this was the kind of thing you heard growing up, but in as a Kentucky, one of the things that we would hear was, you don't talk about sex, religion, or politics in mixed company. And I don't know if that's a baby boomer thing, or if that's a, totally a baby boomer cultural thing of uh, the region, but it is... It, it has the detrimental effect of not being able to be in spaces to share stories. Uh, I literally had someone say, your rape story is not uh, the kind of thing that you should tell people when you first meet them. And I, I said, oh, I'm actually going to just add that to that story, uh, <laughs> actually, because obviously some pedophile has moved into the space where you are advocating for their si- me silence, <laughs> being, being silenced around that which doesn't seem wise when the prevalence is so ubiquitous here. Mm-hmm. Um, but when you're looking at the the work that you're doing, do you, with the researchers, also have an opportunity to kind of see the impact of the work and see anything about the statistics? Or do you stay very much in the realm of sharing stories and knowing that you are touching people one person at a time in these rooms? The most important thing is is to just... The, 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 the one-on-one, the, the conversation, the conversation we're having, the conversations we have in the military. It's interesting that the military has been kind of our biggest supporter in, in needing the program because they understand the negative effect of untreated trauma firsthand. They have a million people in the military and people who've experienced, they've seen it generationally since World War II and doctors have really started to look at this and this history of trauma. So they get it right away. They're like, oh, right. If there's, if, if one out of six uh, of our men uh, have experienced this trauma, it's going to affect how they work. And in our world on the battlefield and trust and building group, we can't have that. Like, so that's, that's really, you know, that's, that's been inspirational. 
Um, so I see that effect there. I also see it uh, just in our website, just the amount of traffic, you know, the hundreds of thousands of, of men and family and family members, because it's also not just for survivors. I mean, a lot of, of members of families are like, what do I, how do I relate to my dad? How do I relate to my brother? How do I relate to my uncle? The other thing, well, you can go there and go like, oh, I see. We can talk. Here's how other men have talked about it. The Bristlecone Project, which is, I think, 135 men who shared their stories. And there's about 30 men who we have on video, and we're going to continue growing this, is kind of our showa in a way. It's our way of going, you know what? These stories are valid, and they're different, and it's a way in. Um, so... Uh, it's very gratifying for me in that way. And we're just going to expand it because we have a very simple thing to do. So now we're taking the organization and we're going to grow it so that we have, you know, our online support groups sell out very quickly. And we, we need more of them and we need more regional stuff. We need the ability so that men, once they do come, can get together and gab, like I said, you know, and realize that they can meet up with some group of, of survivors or whatever and go, you know. Uh, have have brotherhood in a way that is really important. And if I go to one in six dot org, do I have access to that uh, information and uh, being able to see that work right away, or is there somewhere else I go? No, it's right away because all the information is out there has all been vetted, and so there's lots of questions that can be answered. There's um, uh, and and the men who share their stories through the Bristlecone Project, which is attached to one in six. Um, are, are very accessible. Um, and, you know, there's a 24-hour helpline. You can get right on and chat that way. And, you know, we're doing things because we want to really bring that into house because now we have to kind of, you know, work with RAIN and work with other organizations to share stuff. And we don't want wait times. I mean, our wait times are too long. We need, you know, because a lot of times at 2 in the morning when someone's having this crisis, you don't want them to wait, you know. So there's there's work we need to do to make it bigger and better, but it's, it's not reinventing the well. It's just going to be money and, 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 and opening it up. As a father, as an artist, as an advocate, uh, Tony, what is it as you're moving into this phase of your life and your career with us dealing with two public health crises and living and working in quarantine, what is it you're looking forward to? What are you hoping? What are you aspiring to do with your time and how are you navigating the two public health uh, crises that are impacting all of us in such a substantive way? Well, it's been a pretty wonderful experience because my partner, Mayor Winningham, who is a, a dear friend of yours, she and I have had this incredible thing of being here in a very isolated, beautiful place. And we kind of thought, oh, I wonder if this is like, you know, kind of a big timeout. <laughs> you know, if someone said, higher power, however you relate to it, said, you know what, time to kind of reassess. And so it's been a pretty powerful time to slow down and stop, and think, put those values back in, what is important. And, and what's come through, I think, for me is, 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 is really the joy will be of getting back into the rooms and getting back into having to not do this virtually with survivors and families of survivors and getting this one in six story out. Um, so that will be great. I really look forward to getting back in the theater, both as an audience and, and on stage. I just, there's nothing ever been more magical to me than it was the first church I ever found 
when I was 12 years old, and this was before I was abused or had any relationship with that, even though my abuser was in, from that world, what drew me in and what gave me solace was the fact that I could be in that space with other people creating and then communicating with an audience. I was like, I died and gone to heaven. That was my heaven. So I really look forward to that. And it's, um, there's, there's so much good work to be done. There's so many great playwrights to explore uh, that have incredible voices. And that's what I am excited about is more words from other great people. Thank you, Tony. I can't thank you enough for sharing uh, your wisdom and your, your just good heart and um, willingness to be of service to uh, your fellow men and women in such a meaningful and substantive way. Thank you for your time today. Thank you, Robert. You've, you've provided a beautiful space to do that. Thank you. Join us next week for another episode of Borrowed Wisdom. Thanks, folks. Borrowed Wisdom is a community-supported project of Actors Theatre Direct, the virtual home of Actors Theatre of Louisville. It's hosted by Executive Artistic Director Robert Barry Fleming. Learn more about Actors Theatre of Louisville at actorstheatre.org.